Good morning, everyone. For the past number of weeks, we have been thinking and looking together on how we can break man-made rules that are hindering us from a good relationship with God and with people. And these rules are sometimes stated in ways that kind of camouflage the rule. For example, if you've heard, now stop your crying, the rule underneath that is, don't feel. And we're trying to lay a foundation here for the personhood that God gave us when he created us. And we need to be known as people who are able to talk and to feel and to trust. Our dialogue should be known for authenticity and engagement. We should understand how our emotions indicate what's happening in our heart. And we can check our heart's dashboard on a regular basis. And we treasure trust, building and guarding it as essential for real community. Yes, so this next rule we want to talk about uh, breaking is the don't think rule. Thinking and learning are very interlinked. So the don't think rule sometimes shows up as don't learn. I definitely grew up with this rule. Whenever I was told, just do what you're told, don't ask questions, beneath that rule was don't think. When I was in grade two, my teacher noticed I had a stuttering problem. S's were a big problem for me. She had a speech therapist talk with me and he wrote a letter to my parents highly recommending his services. He believed he could help me stop stuttering. Dad responded with, no, not interested. I recall thinking as a seven-year-old, um, someday I'd like to know what I'm missing out on. A few years later, our family had an experience that demonstrated the don't think, don't learn rule. We moved out of town as dad bought our first acreage with a house and a large barn. It was a chance of a lifetime to start our own farm. We decided to start small. We placed an order for 50 Rhode Island red baby chicks from the Sears catalog. They arrived in the mail and this package of chirping chicks was placed at the base of the post holding up the mailbox. We kids raced out to the road, carefully picking up this bulky box with breathing holes in it and carried it to the freshly prepared chicken coop in the upper part of our barn. We kids had done everything necessary to ensure these chicks would love their new home. Plenty of chicken feed in the homemade trough, a sophisticated water system, a couple of heat bulbs and an ample straw to help them feel just comfy and not a cobweb in sight. After a few weeks of the best of care to our dismay, one of our growing chicks died. Well, that was strange. The next morning, another one was lifeless. Then another one the next morning. Hmm, must be something in the air, we first thought. Or perhaps something in the feed. Maybe it was Sears. They sent us a batch of chicks with a short lifespan. Why didn't Sears send an instructional manual on how to raise chicks? Well, they knew it couldn't be that difficult. At supper time, I started the traditional daily chicken report. We now have 32 chicks left. Only 11 chicks left. To our astonishment, 48 of these birds died in a few weeks. We felt helpless to halt whatever was calling, causing their demise. But hey, maybe we'd do better next year. Spring came, leaving us only two chicks, which were now maturing red feathered hens. On a whim, one day after school, we thought we would let these hens out of the coop. 
and take them for a stroll down our driveway. It didn't take long for something very strange to happen. These two hens started pecking at the driveway gravel. Hey, wait, they were actually eating the stones. Oh no, how now our two surviving hens were going to die too from eating stones. Why on earth would they do such a thing as eat rock? Well, we had three farmer neighbors down our road. Their names were Tom, Dick, and Harry, in that order. <clears throat> a week later, I stood with Dad and my brother Tim while Dad told this puzzling story to our neighbor Tom. After listening intently to Dad explain this crazy story of chicks dying and hens eating stones, Tom asked the most obvious question. Did you give your chicks any crushed grit? What's that? Well, chicken stomachs work different than humans. They have no way of digesting their food without grit. We Woodards all thought, you've got to be kidding. Um, why didn't we ask ourselves better questions when these chicks kept dying off? We had no lack of experienced farmers as friendly neighbors, so why didn't we think of asking even one of them for their advice much earlier in this journey? If God had providentially placed us on this acreage and given us a passion to farm, why didn't farming come to us naturally? It's because God wants us all to learn and he wants us all to think. A half century later, the answer to these questions is as plain as the nose on my face. When the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, and don't think rules guide most everything we do, our learning curve will probably be as flat as a pancake. Without an active learning curve, our best plans fall flat. When we don't think, we don't learn. And this principle especially applies to relationships. Dan, would you explain for us the contrast between don't think and let's think? Sure. Let's contrast don't think with let's think. And let's begin with don't think. In this scenario, questions are resisted. They're viewed as distrust or rebellion against authority. In this model, learning is seen as obedience to authority. If you just obey the authority, they think you've learned. And the way they enforce this is by saying things like, just do what I say. Don't question things, just do it. And in compliance in this model is enforced by emotional shutdown or even physical things. Let's contrast, let's think. In this scenario, questions are welcomed. In fact, they're viewed as engaging learning. So they are glad. We are glad when people ask questions. We affirm asking questions because in this scenario, we see learning as a journey to truth, understanding that people need to learn. And there's a journey to that. It takes time. There's a processing. And so when a question is raised, rather than being told not to think or to just obey, the person is say we just say to the person well let's just discover together you'll note that we don't tell them our answer we don't tell them the end of our journey we we join them in their journey and we help them discover truth because wisdom comes by invitation not by 
coercion. And this actually is reminiscent of wisdom as described in Proverbs chapter 1. Here in Proverbs 1, wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street and to those gathered in front of the city gate. So in these two verses here, note that wisdom is calling out, not coercing, not intimidating, but calling. And calling out pretty directly. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? How long will you mockers relish their mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? So there's a confrontation here in that sense that there's a different way of thinking. But listen to the tone of how she is asking this or inviting this. Come, listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you and I'll make you wise. Do you feel the invitation of wisdom here? When we hear this, it actually engenders a response of, I would like to learn. I would like to come and be a part of this. So let's just now use a diagram to give a bit of a picture to what the learning might look like if you use this let's think approach. Let's say that these here, these numbers at the bottom represent the, decade, uh, the years of a person's life. And that let's say the vertical axis represents learning. So what would the learning path look like for someone who's been encouraged to think? Maybe something like this. You'll see there's a step look to it. And that's because in the rise is what we would say is the question time. When questions are asked, when good questions are asked, that is learning. That is engaging in learning. So then the flat line might be the dialogue time or the reflection time. And the dialogue might be with living people, or it might be with an author or with an idea. But there are questions that are uh, in dialogue with something, with somebody, and the person is reflecting. And you'll see that it's a series of questions and thinking, questions and, and dialogue. And on you go, as you go through life, you just get wiser, get stronger. Now let's contrast what don't think might look like. The learning curve in this scenario might be something like this. Well, you can see that, yes, there are questions just like normal. But then if those questions are met with, don't talk, quit asking all those questions, be quiet, then the person shuts down. But that doesn't mean they don't have questions. They do. So they ask and they surface more questions. And at this time, they are told, don't feel. That's a stupid question. Why do you act like that? Quit your griping and your grumping. Quit asking all those questions. The person begins to feel like, hmm, I'm not supposed to feel angst about these things, but they still do. So they ask more questions. But at this time, they are told and they're shut down again. They begin to interpret, don't trust. I'm not going to bring up a question again. Every time I do, I get hammered. I get shut down, I get belittled. And so a person then shrinks back. But that still doesn't mean they don't have big questions because when you get into the teen years, you've got big questions, lots of them. And then when you are told by silence or by um, ignoring them or by arguing, you're, they're basically interpreting this as don't think. And when this person, gets to be an adult, 
often this is what happens kabam the person throws out everything that they thought they were learning at home because they were told not to think and they weren't given answers they assume there are no answers the reason i'm not allowed to ask questions is because there are no good answers and the whole thing is a crock and so they throw out their whole family and often their faith in fact when you listen to the stories of the new atheists today often they have been raised in homes that have these rules in them and they have been so turned off by that experience that they have thrown everything out and become militant atheists dan this describes so well my experience as a child my siblings and i can easily identify with this latter diagram none of us left home with any sense of blessing or celebration from our dad so far in this let's break the rules series we found that the story of adam and eve in the garden has much to say let's turn to genesis 3 once again god told adam if you eat of the fruit of this certain tree you will start dying there will be consequences and sure enough the consequences began immediately Adam became blind in his thinking. He couldn't think accurately. He thought to himself, if I hide behind this tree, God won't be able to find me. And if God doesn't see me, he won't ask me tough questions. What is Adam thinking? Adam, when God initiates a dialogue, Adam's thinking process is so blind and broken that he thinks blaming his wife for his predicament is a valid way of managing life. And from that day to this, our ability to think accurate thoughts about anything, including relationships, is clouded at best and entirely false at worst. Why, what does God do when his beloved creation has fallen into twisted thinking? Let's look at scripture to show us how he approached this deep problem. Well, 20 generations after Adam, Abraham is born in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur was a very famous and powerful city that was known for its moon god and also its child sacrifices. Talk about completely wrong thinking. This was an abomination to God's mind. So how would God bring light into this darkness? Well, his strategy was to call Abraham out of Ur and tell him that he's going to take him to a new promised land. And this is metaphorical for Abraham having to leave his whole life and the culture and the way of thinking, leave all that and go to somewhere different, somewhere new, somewhere that he wasn't even sure what it was yet. But by faith, he responds to God and he goes. And God gave Abraham a vision. And he said, my plan, Abraham, is that I want to make a nation out of you that will live according to a whole different set of thinking and a whole different way of behaving that will become a light and a, a revelation to the rest of the world. You'll become an example that all the rest of the world could follow. And so then God began initiating with Abraham a series of experiences that would teach Abraham incrementally who God really was. The most famous one, of course, was when God did something that sounded like the gods of Ur. God said to Abraham, now go sacrifice your son. And Abraham 
thinking that this is what God's do, went ahead and did it. And he was about to kill Isaac when God intervened from heaven and said, no, stop, don't do that. I do not want child sacrifice. If you, if I need a, a sacrifice, I won't demand it of you, I will provide it. And this was such a new thought to Abraham that he called the place Jehovah Jireh, God, the Lord who will provide. That's Hebrew, for the Lord who will provide. And we have a major change in his understanding and thinking about God. In fact, all of the names of God in the Old Testament are declarations from different people who came to a realization about who the real God was and what he was like. And they came up with this series of names. Fast forward four generations later when Abraham's family, now known as Israelites, end up in Egypt as slaves. 400 years of slavery knocked all true sense of self-identity out of Israel. What will God do now? Well, he does not give up on his plan to make Israel a shining example. So God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Moses is darkened in his thinking, and he can't believe it's possible. But God engages with him and tells him, there's a new way of thinking. I have been preparing you all your life to lead my people out of slavery into a whole new life, a new future marked by freedom. So Moses returns to Egypt, leads the Exodus out toward the promised land, a good land flowing with milk and honey. But before the Israelites can experience it, they had to have a change in their thinking. Their first big stop is at Mount Sinai, where God says, okay, time for a little orientation. So let me start by giving you the top 10 rules to this new thinking. Bottom line, it's all about relationship. The first four commandments focused on the Israelites' relationship with God, and the next six commandments focus on their relationship with each other. The problem is, however, that people tend to forget God's thinking and adopt their own, just like Adam did. So 40 years later, just before they crossed the Jordan River, Moses warns them in Deuteronomy 12, 8, saying, do not do whatever is right in your own eyes. Now, why would God say that? Because God knows that we forget his ways and we slip back into old thinking. Old thinking seems right when viewed through our own eyes, but it's wrong from God's viewpoint. This is a persistent error by Israel and all of us as well. So they crossed the Jordan, but repeatedly the people and most of the kings revert to their own thinking. They do what they think is right in their own eyes and they end up serving other gods other than the real God. And so what ha this is what happens to all of us when we stop listening to God and we just go with what we think should be right. No, so God had to send prophets to speak to them, to change their thinking. Isaiah, in his very first message, gives voice to God's invitation in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Let's think this through, Israel, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And then later on, again, in his book, chapter 55 and verses 7 and 8, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
we are not the same. We're not on the same page, God says. It needs to be part of your mission in life to get onto my page. And that page is not about performance. It's about relationship. Now, God adjusts his strategy yet another time. He literally comes down to earth in the shape of a man, born as a baby, comes and speaks our language directly to us. In his first message in, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus shocks his hearers by declaring that what you're thinking is just as bad as what you do. That thinking hateful thoughts is as bad as murder. What? The religious types of that day thought that religion and faith was all about keeping external laws of behavior. And Jesus says, oh no, it's much deeper than that. It has to do with the heart and the mind. And so it's important what's going on in our thinking. So the question then would arise, how do we align our thinking with God's way of thinking? And it's not by keeping rules. It's way deeper than that. We get a hint to this. We get a clue in John chapter 17 when we actually, through the gospel writer, get to hear Jesus praying to the Father. And listen to what he says. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. And friends, there is no tighter relationship than that anywhere. And think about this for a second, that Christ is in you, and we, you, are in Christ? Wow. Now, now we're talking about something fundamentally different than keeping rules and regulating external behavior. In fact, a few weeks later, after that prayer in John 17, the Holy Spirit comes and, and rests on each one, which is the sign and the seal that everything Jesus said will come past will come to pass. So from the tragedy that happened in the Garden of Eden to the amazing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, God is calling his people to think differently. And this thinking will be because he is involved directly with it, helping us to understand the difference between right and wrong, God's ways and our ways. And he's calling us to have a sufficient learning curve that we can actually begin to experience authentic fellowship with God and with human beings and each other. So I have a question. Have you ever broken the don't think rule? There's a fairly recent story in my life journey that illustrates breaking the don't think rule, the necessity of being a lifelong learner, and what happens when our learning curve tends to be flat. Breaking any of these rules can be extremely stressful, but this don't think rule is especially risky when the people around us are not open, open to thinking outside the box. It gives me no joy to share the story, but it does illustrate such a vivid picture of what happens to relationships when we don't know how to talk, to feel, to trust, to think. Ten years ago, my mom began talking with me about becoming her power of attorney. She had just been diagnosed with early dementia. She initiated several conversations with me over the phone in 2010 about her need for someone to manage her life in her final years. I would tell her, Mom, I live 2,500 miles away. There are four other siblings who love you, who are well able to care for you. They live within 20, 30 minutes of you. She responded the same way every time. Three words, Dan, you're it. 
you are my choice for power of attorney, and I want your sister Rachel to be the backup. I finally said, okay, I'm willing. And we signed the documents the end of that year, having little clue what we were signing up for. Neither mom nor I felt inclined to share this information with my other siblings as we felt they would not respond well. Fast forward 28 months, mom fell in her home. She didn't hurt herself, but she forgot how to get up. She laid on the floor for 24 hours. No one knew. I called her while I was on the road in Minnesota, traveling back to Canada. She had the phone in her hand and answered after one ring. I listened to her story and assured her I would call my siblings for their help. 20 minutes later, four siblings arrived at her house to help her. A few days later, she was transported to the hospital to be treated for sepsis. She was in the hospital for nine days, then in a rehab center for six weeks. I flew there to be with her. My entire flight south, I pored over the power of attorney documents. I discovered that day the myriad of details that being legally responsible for a mom's future could entail. I couldn't imagine a more steep learning curve than what I was on. So I decided to pull together a virtual team of 30 people to help me on this journey. My mom's care team consisted of four family members, 15 caregivers, a half a dozen social workers, four med, med techs, three attorneys, two police officers, and several missionary peers who had walked this journey with their own parents. Any of them were as close as my phone. None of my siblings were able or willing for mom to live with them. I tried my best to include all of them in the decision of where mom should live after rehab. Two siblings greatly resented the idea of mom not spending her dementia years in her house, but she didn't have the $11,000 a month that would have required. Several siblings refused to visit mom in her final five years of life in silent protest of mom asking me to be her power of attorney. I and others reached out to them numerous times, inviting them to come and visit mom in her new home, but to no avail. Indeed, to borrow Solomon's metaphor, wisdom was crying out in the streets and crying out in the public square. My dear siblings, there's a lot for you to learn about life and death from the very one who gave you life while she gets closer and closer to death. But unless we break the rules, we really won't hear wisdom calling our name. Fast forward two more years, one sister living close by and giving much care to mom began showing evidence of burnout. At the same time, she and her husband were pressuring me to pass over the power of attorney responsibilities to her. It became increasingly complicated. My mom's doctor ceased being her doctor due to my sister's medical interference, such as turning up her oxygen flow rate to 3.5 instead of the prescribed 2.0. This sister and her husband increasingly harassed mom's caregivers for the smallest perception of lack of care. Several people on my mom's care team told me very directly, Dan, you have no legal responsibility to keep your family happy or united, but you do have a legal responsibility to protect your mom from anything that could harm her, including emotional abuse. The director of the assisted living home met with me to explain, Dan, every one of your mom's care team gets what's happening. You're the last one to get it. If you can't bring yourself to protect your mom, 
you could find yourself in a situation where you need to find another home for her. We're just not set up for families with severe broken relationships. Oh my. To attach my signature to a piece of paper that would result in a legal restraining order prohibiting my sister and her husband from trespassing on that assisted living home property was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. I reached out to my sister many times while I was in the area. She refused to meet with me to talk things over. To this day, the majority of my siblings have vowed to never speak with me again. 31 months after this experience, I and two of my sons were shoveling dirt onto mom's grave. Mom never had a chance to say goodbye to the majority of my siblings. Folks, I don't hold this against them. I've forgiven them many times. And if any of them eventually watch this, uh, please hear me tell you, I, I don't hold anything against you. I forgive you. And I know mom forgives you too because she and I talked about it. It's okay. But I ask myself, why did this happen? As everything to do with the rules we all were raised with. We were raised to not have discussions, to stuff our emotions, to never trust people outside our house, and to never think outside our little box. People who choose to live under the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, and don't think rules cannot be pressured into changing. Their choice to keep living under these rules needs to be respected. Wow, what a story, Dan. But it's not one that's unique. Other families had similar things like this. And so this is helpful for us to process our stories and our families and learn from each other. So what are some things that we can learn from your story and this message today? Well, first of all, note that when Jesus uh, gave the great commandment, the commandment says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mind is in there. The thinking is a part of our way of loving God. And God blesses those who are willing to think and who are willing to ask questions and to seek and to inquire. God welcomes that. Second lesson we can get out of this is that people who don't learn how to think are sitting ducks for people to control them, for becoming puppets of other people. There's plenty of people who would love to do the thinking for you. In Acts chapter 17, there was a group of believers called the Bereans who when they heard Paul speaking, they checked the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And they are commended for this. So folks, we learn that it's okay to question spiritual authority. It's okay to check the message of somebody against the written word. And the third thing we know is that we want to appeal to any of you that have been hurt by past experiences where your opinion or your question was shut down and you felt put out, we want you to hear us when we say, that's not the way Jesus treats people. Mm. You are perfectly right for maybe choosing to leave an abusive environment, but we want to invite you to look again at Jesus. I mean, the real Jesus, not the rigid, authoritarian, demeaning kind of religion place that so turned you off. No, I'm talking about looking at Jesus himself. And one of the ways is to listen to an apostle who was the closest to Jesus, and his name was John. Listen to what John says about Jesus, the real Jesus. 
This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for being willing to step into our mess, into our pain, into our twisted thinking, and helping us to see the light, to see truth, to change our thinking, and to understand that you have come not to accuse us, not to make us feel bad about our lives, but to change our thinking and to give us life that springs from within. Thank you for your wonderful offer. And by faith, Lord, we turn to you and we invite you to shape our thinking. We want to learn your ways and to think your thoughts after you and find out that life truly is abundant and eternal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.